This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The hand and wrists are very complex parts of our anatomy, and they're composed of over 30 bones, multiple tendons, multiple muscles and nerves. And hand or wrist complaints are some of the more common reasons patients come to see their primary care provider. And at times, the cause of their symptoms can be quite elusive. We need to be able to accurately assess the patient's symptoms, diagnose the various disorders, and then determine which ones need to be referred for specialty care and which ones we can manage on our own. In this podcast, we'll discuss some of the more common hand and wrist disorders with Dr. Sanjeev Kakar, a hand specialist from the Department of Orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Sanjeev, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. This should be an interesting topic. Good to see you, Dr. Chucker, and uh, thank you for the privilege of your time. Oh, sure. Well, let's start with a very common complaint, and that's carpal tunnel syndrome. We see that often in our practice. And just if you could review for the audience, what are the common ways these patients present to us? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So carpal tunnel is uh, very, very common. In fact, it's the most common, what we call nerve entrapment and enthropathy that we see in the hand and wrist. And if you remember the carpal tunnel runs in the palmar aspect of your hand and it contains tendons and the nerve, the median nerve. And so most of the time the patient's symptoms are actually pretty classical. They'll complain of numbness and tingling. And at first they'll say it's the whole hand, but when you actually pinpoint it down, it's primarily the thumb and the index of the long finger and the inner half of the ring finger. And it's a classic diagnosis, for example, at nighttime, the biggest complaint is they have difficulty sleeping and they sometimes have to wake up and they shake their hands. When they're on the cell phone, for example, they may have to alternate hands because they fall asleep or when they're holding the steering wheel and driving and they have to take their hand and shake it. Those are the sort of classic type of uh, symptoms that patients will present with. When it becomes more advanced, they'll complain of things, for example, dropping things and the fingers are just more clumsy. For, so for example, doing the buttons uh, on a shirt or uh, doing your bra strap for ladies. And, and they, they find the fingers are just more clumsy and they're not working like they used to work. Yeah, you mentioned the shaking of the hands. And I think I have noticed in most patients, they have always described that. They try to shake their hand to make paresthesias go away. So I know early on, there may not be any physical findings, but as this gets advanced and patients haven't been treated, what might we find on physical exam? It's a good question. So oftentimes in the, in the clinic, we use something called the carpal tunnel six, and there's sort of six specific signs and symptoms in terms of what patients have that will lead you down the pathway of carpal tunnel. So the first one is numbness and tingling in the median nerve distribution. It's not really pain, it's numbness and tingling. The second thing is nighttime symptoms that we've talked about. And in terms of clinical examination, uh, we talk about a positive tunnel, which is the tapping of the median nerve at the wrist crease. And this is where patients will feel that electrical shock going down the thumb index long or the radial half of the ring finger. In addition, we talk about a positive Phelan's test. And, um, and what is that? That is where you essentially, when the, the wrist is bent at about 90 degrees and that, that causes that numbness and tingling because it's being pressure being put onto the nerve. In addition, we also talk about loss of the thena muscle strength. And that's where you say where it becomes more advanced when patients try and abduct or abduct their thumb. 
And so a useful way, so for example, if you have your hand flat on the table, you ask the patient to bring their thumb up straight north and they abduct their thumb. And what they'll do sometimes is patients will cheat and they'll pronate or twist their hand, bringing their thumb into that position. So I hold the, the uh, palm flat on the table, ask them to bring their thumb north, and then you can feel that big, strong muscle in there, the abductor. The other uh, component of that carpal tunnel six that we talked about is loss of two-point discrimination, whereby using a two-point discriminator wheel, whereby the, the feeling is greater than five millimeters in terms of pinprick. The other test that we'll do is sometimes we'll do a Durkin compression test where we'll put pressure over the carpal tunnel and hold it, and that will also reproduce those symptoms. So a combination of a detailed history and what we talked about physical exam in most patients will elucidate the signs and symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. I've actually seen a few patients who've let their carpal tunnel syndrome get quite advanced, and you can actually see some atrophy of those thinner muscles, especially when it's unilateral compared to the other side. It's quite obvious. That's a great point you made, Dr. Chucker. And I think when you get to that level, when, you're, when you've lost motor strength, I think that's where you know, we want to intervene, obviously, beforehand, because that mm -hmm. motor loss is permanent. And any form of treatment, while it'll improve symptoms, predictably won't improve the degree of muscle loss that they've actually uh, sustained. Mm -hmm. Now, some patients end up with an EMG. I mean, that can show the nerve entrapment findings, but do all patients need that? It's a good question. So what we're talking about is electrodiagnostic studies, which look at how that nerve, I equate the nerve like an electrical cable, and how the impulses are coming down that sort of electrical cable, and also how the signals are getting into the muscle. And there's some controversy uh, about getting that test because in most patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, you can diagnose it without that. However, it is a useful test, for example, in diagnosing the severity of medium nerve compression and also for ruling out other nerve conduction problems or nerve problems. So for example, sometimes the nerves can be pinched in the neck and it can also present with carpal tunnel-like symptoms, although the clinical exam findings are different. So it's useful in that way. It can also be useful in terms of the patients had surgery before and maybe hasn't gotten better or got better and then the, the symptoms came back again. So it can be used in terms of that role as well. Mm -hmm. But I would say to your point, is electrodiagnostic testing needing in everybody? The answer is no. Okay. Now I know in many patients when they present early, there's kind of a stepwise progression for management. Can you kind of review how we would start treating these patients? Yeah, so the first thing to diagnose is obviously the condition and the possible cause most causes of carpal tunnel syndrome are idiopathic or they happen without a cause, but there are some, for example, medical causes. So for example, diabetes, hypothyroidism, when you have inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis. So maybe medical management of those conditions can help in the treatment, some occupational risk factors as well. But assuming we've done our best in those ways, in terms of non-operative treatment, typically we talk about a wrist splint at nighttime, because when we sleep, we all bend our wrists down and that puts pressure on the nerve. So a wrist extension splint, so any splint that has a strong sort of palmar restraint to preventing wrist flexion is a good idea. Steroid injections actually work well as well. In most people, they actually work well and can give a, both a diagnostic effect, a prognostic effect, and also a therapeutic effect. So usually if the symptoms are relatively mild, we may start off with uh, injection treatment. Oftentimes we will see it in patients who are pregnant or post-pregnancy 
where there's been a change in their fluid dynamics. And typically those we try and manage non-operatively because invariably that gets better, for example, after the pregnancy mm -hmm. or once the fluid dynamics have sort of subsided. And that's typically what we would do non-operatively. There is an indication for surgery, but I would say in most patients, non-operative treatment certainly does have a role. And also hand therapy, for example, uh, we can send patients to our hand therapy colleagues to work on something called median nerve gliding exercises whereby our therapist will teach the patients how to work on gliding exercises for the median nerve. And that, those can also be helpful as well. Okay. Well, let's turn to Dupuytren's contracture. I think this condition we probably find more often on exam and patients aren't even aware of it than they coming in with symptoms. Talk a little bit about Dupuytren's. How, how do patients present? How do we recognize this? We see a lot of patients, especially in Minnesota, with Dupuytren's disease. And uh, many of the patients actually have some Northern European descent, be that uh, Irish, Norwegian, or German. Dupuytren's disease is basically thickening of the palmar fascia, which is the tissue underneath the skin. And most of the times patients may notice a nodule. It may just happen without any particular trauma. Or if they fall on their hand, they've irritated that palmar tissue. It is also sort of linked with certain diseases as well. But most of the time, Dupuytren's disease causes painless nodules and possibly the bending of the fingers. So if somebody has a bending of the fingers, two types of diagnosis come to mind, be that a trigger finger or Dupuytren's disease. And the treatment for Dupuytren's disease is primarily based on symptoms. So if patients come in and they say, you know, my finger's a little bit bent, but I can do everything I wanna do. I can put my gloves on, I can shave or put my makeup on and I have zero functional problems then the treatment is essentially supported as more education. In the olden days, we would sort of define a certain degree of flexion contracture of the finger as where we would need to impart some form of therapeutic intervention. But I think now it's become more of a functional problem is when we would uh, recommend treatment. And treatment has adapted over the years. In the olden days, and I would say probably maybe 10 years ago, in terms of surgical intervention, it would be a condition where we would do surgery and take out that Dupuytren's disease called palmar fasciectomy. These days, I think we have more office-based procedures, and there's essentially two office-based procedures. Number one is something called a needle aproneurotomy, whereby you take a needle and you cut the cord. So if you imagine a rope, what you're doing is cutting that rope. You don't get rid of the rope, so the tissue stays in the palm, but what you're doing is cutting the rope and it helps get the finger out straighter. In addition, there's also a medication called collagenase in certain patients where you can inject that cord and the enzyme dissolves the cord and you can break the cord. So I think our treatment of Dupuytren's disease has really changed from doing a, a lot of surgery to more of these more minimally invasive treatments. There must be a very strong hereditary component to this because when I find this in patients, I ask them or they sometimes even tell me, oh yeah, my mom or my dad had the same exact thing. That's quite a common statement that they make. Absolutely. Sometimes it's my uh, Dupuytren's is not as bad as my relative or it's worse. And, and also there are patients that have it not only in the hand, but can actually have it in the feet and in men can also affect the penis as well. Hmm. One question I've always wondered about, is it my imagination or does this tend to occur more commonly proximal to the fourth phalanx than the others? That's an excellent question. There's been some interest in terms of gripping activities. So when we tend to grip, it's our ring and small finger that imparts the most amount of grip in the palm and in the hand. And there is a link to progressive uh, repetitive motion in terms of gripping and the biomechanics affecting the palmar fascia more 
in those fingers so that, than compared to the other fingers. So I think you're very astute in your findings. Interesting. Okay, well, let's turn to one that's uh, kind of close to my heart because I've had this myself, uh, De Quervain's tenosynovitis. How do patients present with this? De Quervain's tenosynovitis is essentially an inflammation of the extensor tendons on the radial sides, so on the thumb side of your wrist. If you remember, there are six compartments containing the extensor tendons, and this is the first compartment affecting the um, EPB and the APL tendon. And it tends to happen, for example, in patients who are doing a lot of repetitive activities. So for example, a lot of sports activities, haven't done it for a while and doing a lot of overuse. It's more of a tendonitis, can happen in pregnancy as well, but also can happen, for example, inflammatory arthritis. And, and patients will complain of pain over the radial side of their wrist, and especially when they go into ulnar deviation where they're trying to grip. The other diagnosis to think about at that same time, assuming there's no trauma, is basal thumb joint arthritis because the proximity of where patients hurt is very close. And the diagnosis is pretty typical on history and a clinical examination where they have pain over the radial side of their uh, wrist. And when you only deviate or if you pull on the thumb, that will cause them to have significant pain in that area. So it's a really good history and physical exam can deduce a diagnosis in most patients. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage the tenosynovitis? So again, like carpal tunnel uh, syndrome, I think uh, non-operative treatment has an excellent role here. So uh, a wrist splint uh, that prevents radial ulnar deviation of the wrist, hand therapy where our therapist can use ultrasound, and sometimes an ultrasound guided or an injection in the first dorsal compartment can help. And most of the time patients get better with this, but if they don't, then if, we, if they're recalcitrant to non-operative treatment, then surgery is a pretty straightforward day case surgery uh, procedure where we make a small incision over the radial side of the wrist and essentially free up that first dorsal compartment to allow those tendons to sort of glide without that constriction on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you mentioned thumb arthritis. That's another common thing that we see. You talked a little bit about the difference between de Quervain's and thumb arthritis, but what do we do with patients who have thumb arthritis? Because it is so common. I'm not sure we have a lot to offer them if it's not advanced enough for surgery. What treatment can we offer them? There are many things that we can offer patients with thumb arthritis. It's very common. You know, I'm in clinic today, mm -hmm. and I've seen a number of patients with basal or thumb joint arthritis. Typically affects women more than men, and especially as one gets in advancing age. It's essentially pain at the base of the thumb. And when you pinch a pound of pressure between the thumb and the index finger, it's magnified 12-fold at the base of the thumb. So typically it's classic, for example, patients can't open jars, turn a doorknob, hold a key, and that pain really is very specific at the base of the thumb. I would say the mainstay of treatment of basal or thumb joint arthritis is non-operative treatment. So assuming there's no medical contraindications or allergies, topical anti-inflammatory cream works well, for example, Alterin gel, where they mm -hmm. can rub that area uh, with that gel because there's not much fat in that area. It gets absorbed into the joint. Splints work well, and there's two types of splints. You can get a thumb spiker splint that goes around the forearm, which works well, for example, at nighttime, where a patient can wear it at nighttime to give their thumb a good night's rest, as it were, but can be impractical in the daytime because they can't move their wrist. But that's where our hand therapist can make them a nice customer-fitted splint that fits around the base of the thumb. And I think a combination of that and some strengthening exercises with hand therapy actually can buy you a lot of time before needing surgical intervention. Mm -hmm. We do use steroid injections. There's two real joints around the base of the thumb joint, the thumb CMC and the STT joint. And I mentioned the STT joint because invariably patients will go for a thumb 
CMC or carpometacarpal joint injection. And they say, well, it worked a little bit, but didn't take a lot of the pain away. But because the STT joint, which is the adjacent joint, the scaphoid trapezoid trapezial joint wasn't injected at the same time. So invariably, we start off with thumb injections of both joints, usually if it's advanced or just the thumb CMC joint, if it's in the early stages, and try and maximize non-operative treatment. And most of the time, patients will do pretty well. Now, if they don't, then surgery certainly has its indications. And surgery can work well, and there's a myriad of different options for that uh, in terms of the procedures that we offer. As you mentioned, this can be confused with decurvain's tenosynovitis, but if you can separate it from that and you're pretty confident that it's thumb arthritis, does an x-ray help you at all? Do you need that? I think an x-ray does actually help you because it gives you an idea of which joints are involved. Is it just purely thumb carpometacarpal joint or is it pan trapezial arthritis all the way around it? So I think it can help. And in terms of the exam, Dr. Chuck, if I may just go over that a little bit more, typically what I do is I ask a patient to pinch pretty hard and they'll point to the back of their thumb. And usually what happens is that when you have thumb CMC arthritis, you get dorsal subluxation of the thumb metacarpal base on the trapezium. And so actually it's a pretty simple test. Many tests have been described, but typically what I do is I push that dorsal subluxation back into the joint. And as you reduce that arthritic joint, that's what will cause the pain and the symptoms that patients have, because that joint can be actually very painful anyway. And the more you push and pull on it, it can actually be a very unpleasant exam. But I found very specifically, if you find the base of the thumb CMC joints and just move the thumb metacarpal around, and then just with a degree of traction and just reduce that thumb metacarpal back into the joint, that's what will elucidate the pain and it can then help you with your diagnosis. Okay. Now you see hand and wrist problems day after day. What else do you see that you think we should know about? So we, we talked a little bit about Dupuytren's disease and I mentioned in there trigger finger. Mm-hmm. And trigger finger is essentially where patients will either complain of palm on the palmar aspect of their MP joints. Typically they'll come in and say, you know, my fingers just ache. And when I'm gripping, I can feel some pain. So when I, when I hear that, I first of all rule out carpal tunnel syndrome. But then I also very simply put my finger over the volar aspect of the MCP joint, push pretty hard and ask them to make a fist. And sometimes you can feel a nodule or they'll feel pain. And you can actually sometimes see in advanced cases triggering of the finger. So I think trigger finger is actually a very common diagnosis. And the treatment, again, for that hand therapy works well. And oftentimes a single steroid injection works well. If it comes back, then an operation, again, a minimally invasive procedure actually works very well for that. The other thing that I see a lot of is ulnar wrist pain. And uh, ulnar wrist pain is basically, if you imagine the pinky side at your distal ulna, and we see a lot of patients with ulnar side wrist pain. And and that has often been confusing. It's often uh, sort of uh, termed the low back pain of the wrist or the black box of the wrist, because there's a number of diagnoses in that area. And sometimes you'll see patients, for example, who have fallen or had a twisting injury, And every time that they're pouring, for example, a bottle of water or opening a a jar or a tap, they'll complain of pain in this area. And sometimes you get x-rays and they're normal. And you say, well, there's nothing really going on there. And it it rules out basically arthritis or a fracture. But commonly, there's many, many soft tissue in that area. The most common soft tissue that's injured inside the wrist is something called the triangular fibrocartilage complex or the TFCC. Or there's a tendon called the ECU tendon the extensive carpi ulnaris tendon that runs in the back of the wrist. Those are the more common causes of ulnar-sided wrist pain. And so in managing those patients, typically I'll get an MRI 
to help diagnose that. And then selective injections work well. Now, many times patients say, well, they tried a wrist splint, just like a carpal tunnel splint. But the problem with ulnar wrist pain is the twisting problem. And those sort of shorter splints don't stop twisting. And so patients will say, well, I've tried the splint for six weeks and it didn't help. Well, I think splinting does help, but it tends to be either some form of an above elbow type of splint that limits that twisting. So I think ulnar wrist pain is also something that's very common that I see. And there's many ways that we can help patients, but trying to hone in on diagnosis, I think is the first step in helping these patients. Well, we've been discussing some of the more common disorders of the hand and wrist with Dr. Sanjeev Kakar, a hand specialist from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the Mayo Clinic. Sanj, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I know I've learned a lot, and I think our audience has too. Thank you again. Thank you, George Chaka. I enjoyed this uh, time with you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week 